I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone, and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilize the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. Today on Gardening with the RHS, we're exploring what happens when we let nature take over. We've gone from being, you know, a depleted piece of land that really was not notable for nature to being one of the most important biodiversity hotspots in the UK. We've now got some of the rarest species, including nightingales, turtle doves, purple emperor butterflies, peregrine falcons nesting here. We've got such abundance of songbirds that when you go out on a spring morning, you can feel that sound reverberating in your lungs. Yes, we're running wild in a pioneering rewilding project in West Sussex where the pigs and the ponies roam free. We're also delving into the history of often vilified garden plants, ivy and Japanese knotweed. And we're debunking some myths about America's most infamous weed. Oh, it was spooky, it was scary, it was... It was monumental. I remember as a kid the stories about kudzu and snakes. The vines acted like snakes and they looked like snakes. And people said, don't go into that kudzu patch. There are snakes everywhere. Hello and welcome to the show. I'm Fiona Davison. And I'm Gareth Richards. Today's show is all about exploring what happens when we hand over responsibility to the plants and wildlife in our green spaces. Now, what do you get if you mix poor quality clay soil, a passion for wildlife and a biodiversity crisis? Well, a 20-year rewilding experiment that has stunned ecologists throughout the UK. Isabella Tree and her husband, Charles Burrell, manage NEP, a three and a half thousand acre estate just south of Horsham in West Sussex. Since 2001, they made the decision to stop intensively farming the land and let the natural world do its own thing. The results of this experiment have been extraordinary. I'm looking out onto a landscape that when I first looked through these windows, whenever it was in the 1980s when Charlie and I moved here, it was pretty much ploughed up to the very windows. And now I'm looking onto a sort of rugged parkland scene with sort of ant hills and some fine old oaks, but a couple of them toppled over, still left there in the landscape. What we've done here is turn an estate that was essentially an arable and dairy farm that was losing money hand over fist when we first took it over in the 1980s. We farmed it intensively for about 17 years before finally coming to the realization 
It had been dawning on us for a while, but we made the decision to stop farming because it simply wasn't profitable. We're on very heavy Sussex clay. So in about 2000, we decided we had to do something radically different with the estate. We wanted to work with the land rather than battling against it all the time. And that's when we decided to turn it over into a kind of rewilding experiment to see if we could use free-roaming animals, old English longhorn cattle, Exmoor ponies, Tamworth pigs, red deer, fallow deer, really as the kind of proxies of animals that would have been roaming our landscapes thousands of years ago. In the UK, we are one of the most environmentally sort of destroyed countries on the planet. I mean, th this was something that it was so shocking to me. I, I hadn't really even thought about the UK in those terms. But recently there was a study called the Biodiversity Intactness Index, which measured the environment for about 129, I think it was, countries. And we are 29th from the bottom so we've lost 97% of our wildflower meadows in lowland Britain since the Second World War. We've lost almost all our lowland heathland, almost all our lowland wetlands. And we've pulled up tens of thousands of ancient woods, more in the period since the Second World War than in the 400 years before it. We've lost 75,000 miles of hedgerows. And of course, with all of that landscape transformation, that impoverishment of the land, has come a biodiversity crash such as we we can't even conceive. We've got 40 million fewer birds in our skies today than we had when I was growing up in the 1960s. So we have to act fast if we're going to reverse these declines. And of course, it's, it's not just biodiversity we're looking at here when we're talking about habitat restoration. It's also carbon sequestration. I think it is this idea of really allowing nature its head. So if you simply walked away from a piece of land, closed the gate on it and just let nature take its course, over most of temperate zone Europe, what would happen is you would get scrub species coming in and then eventually they would evolve into uh, trees and it would become closed canopy woodland. This is the kind of climax vegetation theory that most botanists are familiar with. But that's actually very species poor and very undynamic. What really benefits biodiversity is having a mosaic of habitats, so patchiness, edges, disturbance, and that's what the large herbivores provide. You can also get that kind of disturbance and dynamism from restoring natural watercourses. So that's another useful tool for getting nature back in the driving seat. It's been just over 20 years since we first pressed the button on the first area of land around the house. We weren't brave enough to commit all 3,500 acres in one go. But what we saw from the 350 acres of the Repton Park restoration around the house, our, dipping our toe in the water, as it were, it was so overwhelmingly extraordinary the insect life that came back, something we hadn't even noticed we were missing as farmers. Um, and then, of course, following the insects came the birds. You know, we were walking out of the door into 
oxeye daisies, eggs and bacon, you know, um, scarlet pimpernel. I mean, amazing, the wildflowers that just came back so quickly. Finally, the land felt like it was doing what it had always wanted to do. It was relaxing and, and so did we. And in that time, you know, we've gone from being, you know, a depleted piece of land that really was not notable for nature to being one of the most important biodiversity hotspots in the UK. We've now got some of the rarest species, including nightingales, turtle doves, purple emperor butterflies, peregrine falcons nesting here. We've got such abundance of songbirds that when you go out on a spring morning, you can feel that sound reverberating in your lungs. Really, the ecologists who've been following this project and have been helping us with the surveying and monitoring Every year, they say, we cannot believe that more life is going to be able to fit in this space. But it does. Every year, we see more increases, more abundance, more species finding us. Ecotourism now is a, is a big part of our income stream, and that's camping and glamping and safaris, which we have a wonderful team of ecologists who take people out on walking safaris or in open-sided safari vehicles, which is great fun. When we were farming, we employed 29 full-time job equivalents. Now we're up to 46. Well, we're addressing exactly this problem, you know, right now, this issue of how can we, how can we really look at our gardens with a kind of rewilding hat on. And we're rewilding our walled garden here at the castle. So for one part of the garden, we have turned what was a croquet lawn, so a monoculture, intentional monoculture of grass, which was fertilized where we had zero tolerance for any weeds. And we've completely turned that, flipped it on its head. So we have put in lumps and bumps of crushed concrete of brick we've turned it into a kind of 3d surface so instantly you've increased your surface area but you're also using different substrates to create different ph values different bases for your plant communities and having these different aspects and these hollows and dips means that you're going to have different plant communities on your north face your south face But I think essentially for gardens, I think we just need to be a little less controlling. Gardens are always going to be highly managed spaces where we want to have enjoyment, we want to sit out, you know, we want to play ball games. So we will want to cut parts of our lawn probably quite regularly if we have, you know, children, grandchildren wanting to play. But equally to have rougher areas where we could let go a little more thinking about vegetation structure rather than just the species of plants. So why are we buying bird boxes for our gardens? You know, should we not also be looking at providing the kind of vegetation structure, the thorny protection that they would naturally find in the wider environment to build their nests in? When you're using your trowel, or your pitchfork in the garden and you watch the robins go behind you to peck at the insects and the earthworms, you're actually being the snout of a pig. That's exactly what happens in the wider environment. I think the species that really 
pulls the heartstrings for me as a turtle dove. This was a bird when I was growing up that I used to hear all the time, that lovely tur-tur, you know, that gives it its name. And I associated it with summer, with lovely long summer holidays, and it was as familiar to me as the sound of the cuckoo. And that bird, when I was growing up, we had 250,000 of them in England. That is now down to probably fewer than 3,000. So what's happened at NET from having virtually no records of turtle doves prior to rewilding, we have now become a hotspot for them. So it's a, a glimmer of hope. It's too late probably for the turtle dove. But we can restore habitats that would perhaps see the turnaround of the nightingale if we learn the lessons that places like NEP teach us about scrubland and dynamic landscapes for all these other species that are on the huge trajectory of decline. Isabella Tree. She's written a book about the NEP experiment called Wilding, the return of nature to a British farm. Now from the wilds of Sussex to Japan, and a very polarising plant, Japanese knotweed. It puts shivers down the spine of a lot of people, but actually there's a good and a bad side to it. And if you look at it closely, it's a really, really fascinating plant. And it's one that maybe will go full circle. It started life as a hero in this country, gone to a villain, and maybe yet be redeemed. And it's been used in Japan for centuries. It's a food, it's medicine, it has incredible qualities like it's full of Reservatrol, which is an anti-inflammatory compound. And it was bought into Europe in about the 1840s, wasn't it, Fiona? Yeah, it was bought into Europe in the 1840s. But the first time um, anybody in the Western world saw it was a dried specimen in 1777. And that was sent over by a doctor called Dr Thunberg. But his successor um, as a medic out in Japan for the Dutch East India Company, Philippe von Siebold, sent the first live specimen over in the 1840s. And it was just one plant. He sent over just one plant to his nursery in Leiden. And it's from that one plant that all of the Japanese knotweed that since spread across uh, Europe and North America originated, which is quite terrifying, really. Wow. And we yeah. should be grateful, actually, that he only sent one plant and that it was female. If he'd sent a male and a female plant over, they could have also spread by seed. At the moment, they're spreading by the rhizomes, tiny little bits of the rhizomes spreading. Um, but if it could have spread by seed as well, well, goodness, we'd be overrun. And when it first came over, it was actually marketed quite heavily to uh, botanical gardens and commercial nurseries and uh, really quite famous garden writers like William Robinson, who was the big proponent of wild gardening, said it's a great plant for the larger garden. And um, people thought, said it could be, because it has such a strong root system, it could be used to stabilise sand dunes and sandbanks, and it could even be a really great food for cattle. Uh, so at one point, it was um, a really quite popular plant. So like you said, Gareth, it's had dramatic ups and downs in its history. <laughs> but I mean, it's interesting when you look at why these things caught the imagination to start with, because, you know, this is a plant that from absolutely nothing in the winter will shoot up. It has these beautiful heart-shaped leaves with a distinctive long tip on the end, which is a drip tip. So it, that sheds the raindrops and stops the plant getting too heavy in, in the rainstorms. And it has these lovely zigzag stems and has these incredible displays of flowers in the autumn time, which is actually quite useful for bees because it flowers 
kind of September time when there's not a whole lot going on. So actually, the last time I saw Japanese knotweed in the wild was down by a stream in Dorset and you could hear it before you could see it because the bees were just going nuts. So this is the thing. I think sometimes we like to demonise plants because they do what we don't want them to. But I think there's always a good side somewhere. And I think part of the reason it spreads so much in... Britain in particular is because we have a lot of these post-industrial sites. So you have things like abandoned railway lines, you have abandoned industrial buildings, lots of concrete, and that creates a kind of ecological vacuum. There's nothing there. And this knotweed is just perfectly poised to kind of bring life to these barren grey spaces. But aside from all these positive aspects, it is still a problem and it is actually covered by the uh, Wildlife and Countryside Act. It's an offence to move it without a licence. This even has implications for foraging so if you want to try it as a wild food I would recommend you don't because the second you cut it and move it, except if it's for eradication purposes, technically you're breaking the law. And, but if you have got it already then call in a specialist contractor because it is extremely difficult to get rid of on its own and it can cause problems. For example, it can lift up patio paving, it can have implications legally when you come to sell your house. So it is worth controlling in a domestic setting, absolutely. And we would strongly recommend that you get professional contractors in to do that. Now, if you're one of our American listeners, it's probably likely you've heard of kudzu. Since the early 1900s, there have been claims that this vine could cover millions of acres. Some say it could cover an area up to the size of a large American city each year. But is there any truth in this? We spoke to conservationist and researcher Bill Finch to find out. Kudzu, an interesting plant. It's got a great name, doesn't it? It's a vining plant. It's from Japan. It is a very large growing, rampant growing vining plant from Japan that was introduced into the US in the 19th century. And uh, it wasn't very successful initially, but it created its own myth after a while that now pervades the South. And so by the late 20th century, kudzu had become emblematic of the South. This vine that wouldn't stop growing was the claim. Kudzu benefited from photography in a lot of interesting ways. And one of the nice things about taking a photograph, you should always remember this when you're taking a photograph, is that you don't see what's outside the frame. <laughs> so people would find these great spots with kudzu and they would take pictures of them. And let me tell you what's in those pictures. They're absolutely incredible. There would be houses that would be covered with kudzu. You would see the outline of the house, but you wouldn't see the house. There would be a car, an abandoned car. You'd see the outline of the car, but you couldn't see the car anymore. There would be trees. You could tell there must have been trees there, but they were completely covered with kudzu. These became really popular images all throughout the South. And boy, you talk about sexy photos for magazines. They were beautiful, they were wonderful. People said, wow, can you believe that vine? Oh, it was spooky, it was scary, it was, it was monumental. I remember as a kid, the stories about kudzu and snakes, the vines acted like snakes and they looked like snakes and people said, don't go into that kudzu patch, there are snakes everywhere. scary. 
did was we walked around the kudzu, <laughs> which wasn't hard to do because it didn't take up that much space. And when you could frame it in a photograph, it looked incredibly, incredibly exotic, incredibly, the world was going to end. It was going to be completely covered in kudzu. The photograph proved it. Each vine has a branch that terminates in three leaflets that are very similar, that are rounded and lobed. It can grow 100 feet in length pretty easily. Along with a lot of other vines, it can be very rampant. It has very interesting flowers. It's a member of the bean family. And like members of the bean family with showy flowers, wisteria is one. It has these very showy flowers that drape down, much like wisteria flowers, not quite as big, not quite as showy, kind of a purplish red, and it has a strong odor of grape Kool-Aid. So it's just a big vine, really big leaves, wisteria-like flowers, very impressive in that way. It was the Euro-American world's introduction, really, to Japan and China in a big way. And it was being celebrated all across the world. And so there was a great World's Fair in the US. And the first introduction we know of was when they brought this plant kudzu and made it as an ornamental that was going to be really nice to plant on your trellis around your house to give it that Japanese feel. And so this was going to be a really important horticultural introduction in the 1876 World's Fair. And, you know, it didn't cause much of a ripple, but we know it was introduced then. And then somebody decided, well, this thing grows pretty fast. Maybe we could use it for cattle food. So it was introduced again as forage for cattle. It had pretty good protein. It was a great failure as a forage because it took a long time to establish it. But that was the initial introduction. So what happened? How did it go from being something that didn't really impress anybody to being something that became a symbol for the southern landscape, this sort of a symbol of invasives? Well, the important part of the story, I think, is that the railroads and the newly developed highway system in the U.S., they were looking for plants that they could plant along these barren dirt road banks that they had just now created and railroad banks that would cover those banks. And so they started using kudzu. And then we had the drought years in the U.S. And we had the Great Dust Bowl. And soil was being displaced everywhere. It was just blowing up in the wind. It was, it was being lost at huge rates because of the way farms were being abused and misused and because of the droughts. And so the USDA was desperately looking for something that would cover that soil again to keep it from blowing away. And they looked on these old railroad banks and these other things at the kudzu and they said, yeah, we could do this. Let's try this. And so they did. Uh, they propagated a huge number of plugs for people to distribute to stop soil erosion during the 30s and 40s. And then a guy in uh, Georgia, a guy named Channing Cope, decided uh, he had a radio show, and he decided, you know, I'm going to be very influential here. I'm going to tell people that here's a way they can save themselves. Here's a way they can save Georgia. Here's a way they can save the South from the Dust Bowl and all of the terrible economic depression of the 30s. There didn't seem to be an easy way out, but what if there was an easy way out? What if kudzu could save us? 
And so he started promoting kudzu and looked to try to get 8 million acres planted. And about a million acres was planted in kudzu. The trouble was all that acreage disappeared, except for the acreage they planted along highways and along railroads because cows couldn't eat it there. So it kept growing. And then there was the other thing. People started driving on those roads. We didn't drive down the highways that much. There weren't highways in the old days. And they were driving about 60 miles an hour, and they were watching this landscape go by. And suddenly there was this very visible vine that was very distinctive in its own way, covering the trees on the edge of the roadway. And they said, kudzu. It was a word they could remember. And so people assumed what they were seeing on the sides of the road, they were seeing everywhere which wasn't true. It only existed really on the sides of the roads. And so it became this mythical beast in the minds of many Southerners, the vine that was going to eat the South, take over the South. So there was an estimate that kudzu was covering millions of acres in the South. When somebody finally got around to assessing how many acres kudzu actually covered, it was the U.S. Forest Service, they did a pretty good job of assessing it. Turns out, may have been a couple of hundred thousand acres. And rather than growing at the size of a good-sized American city every year, which is what they had originally predicted, like 150,000 acres a year, it was actually growing, they estimated, only at about 2,000 acres a year. Is it even growing that much anymore? It's retreated. So all of these things sort of built on each other over time to create this great myth of kudzu. And it's interesting that we decided to see it that way. It tells us something interesting about how we see the world and how we learn about the world. We talk about the internet providing false news and fake news. Well, we've been doing that for quite a while. I think the most important thing to take away from the story of kudzu is how we can build myths about plants and about nature and about things without really understanding how they snowball and how they get out of hand and how myths can seem very, very real. It's about understanding the world around us. It's a big problem now. I think it probably still happens, don't you? Kudzu's just a great example of it. But here's another thing to think about, and, and that is that we have a hard time seeing diversity. <laughs> Alabama struggles with diversity in many ways. So does the rest of the world. Not just biodiversity, but human diversity. Diversity is a hard thing for us sometimes. We like to keep things really, really simple. We don't like to think about things too hard. That's to our own detriment. I think it's the same for gardens all over the world. I think it's the same for natural systems all over the world. We do tend to oversimplify when our real inheritance is the diversity in those landscapes. Bill Finch. So what Bill said is really underlined something that I feel quite strongly is that weeds are quite often just responding to things that we do. So humans are causing a lot of damage to the planet. You know, you we create these ecological vacuums. So, for example, you put a motorway through a landscape or you chop down woodlands. And of course, plants will rush in. You know, the earth wants to be covered in plants wherever there's enough rainfall. The earth just wants to be covered in plants. 
And quite often the things that we call weeds are just the first ones to get there. They're the quickest ones and they're actually, I think actually they have, sometimes they have quite a valuable ecological role. And quite often I think we can be overly negative about invasive non-native plants particularly because they're non-native. And if you look at things like bracken, for example, I think if bracken wasn't a native plant, we would be going absolutely crazy about it. You know, the amount of upland pastureland that bracken invades is huge in this country. It is actually a big problem for hill farmers. But because it's native, we just kind of accept that. Whereas if something isn't native, then it can be quite demonised. And I think there's a bit of a disparity there. Yeah, I mean, the concept of native plants is actually quite a difficult one because where do you draw the line? Mm. People have been either accidentally or deliberately moving plants around for millennia. Exactly. So, you know, where do you say before this point it's native yeah. and afterwards it's, um, you know, invasive or um, non-native species? It's kind of this moment of perfect purity. Where is it? Absolutely. And how do you draw a line in the sand? You know, in the UK, we draw the line in the sand 8,000 years ago when the channel flooded. In Canada, it's quite often considered 500 years ago when Europeans first came. So it just seems a very arbitrary concept. And, you know, nature is in a permanent state of flux. And the idea that we can restore something to some lost past, I think, is quite dangerous because actually that past is gone. And with climate change, we need to have landscapes that are fit for the future. And that's one of the things that inspires me about NEP. It's not we're going to rewild, we're going to plant an oak wood because we feel like an oak wood should be here. It's we're going to step back a bit and let nature run its course and see what these new landscapes, these new ecosystems are. And I think that has far more value than standing there with the spray gun saying, you're not native, I'm going to spray you down in the name of the environment. That, that to me sounds nuts, but I know there will be lots of ecologists that might disagree with that. You know, there's no black and white here. Yeah. It's, it's about judgment. And so that's why it's so important that we've got skilled mm. people working together, ecologists, um, botanists and horticulturalists who can find this balance between nature and people. Yeah. Um, and it gets tricky if you try and make things too clear-cut and black and white. Yes, a simple binary of natives good, non-natives bad. And that just, yeah, I absolutely don't think that serves us. Yeah. And I think it's funny how some plants can be quite well-behaved in some settings and not in others. So, for example, our common ivy, Heterohelix, is considered a really noxious weed in many parts of America. But here it's a really good plant for wildlife. We've talked about it in the podcast before. You know, it supports its own kind of bee. It's a really, really good plant for pollinators in the autumn because it flowers very late. Ivy growing up a tree trunk will just turn it into a tower block for wildlife. All the birds will nest in it. They'll be full of invertebrates. It's, it's brilliant. Again, that's a plant that has come back and forth in terms of horticultural fashion and how much we love it. So I think ivy first became popular as a garden plant um, in the 18th century, actually, as people were, it was very fashionable to build a folly or a ruin, but they were brand new, they were fake. So to make them look ancient and part of the landscape, a really quick way was to grow ivy up and they became ivy clad ruins really quickly. But that then carried on into the Victorian era after follies were no longer quite so popular. The Victorians loved ivy for very practical reasons. It's a really tough plant which puts up with soot and smoke and pollution and darkness. So, you know, a lot of these Victorian 
gardens in the city with lots of smoky air and lots of shade, you know, between the, the walls and the fences of the gardens. Ivy could put up with that without any bother. So it became a really popular Victorian garden plant. And the other reason it was really popular, because it twines and it binds around things, it became associated within the um, Victorian language of flowers with the idea of fidelity and love and the idea that you would bind to your partner. Yes. And so you'll find it in lots of Victorian wedding bouquets that Ivy is, is you know, winding around the floral bouquet. And you see it in lots of Victorian decorative arts, so carpet designs and wallpapers and curtains and fabrics. So it's in my mind, it's really associated with kind of Victoriana. And so if anyone's interested in finding out more about Ivy's, the RHS published a monograph, Hedera, The Complete Guide, which details over 200 different cultivars and has a checklist of more than 2,000 other names. So if you really want to get into Ivy, then this is the book for you. Well, we've come to the end of the show. I think the show has really shown me that, you know, there is always two sides to every story, and particularly with plants, I think it's really worth getting to know your weeds and appreciating them for what they are. For more on anything we've discussed, from rewilding in Sussex to kudzu, ivy and Japanese knotweed, just visit rhs.org.uk forward slash podcast. I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilize the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. Discover the beauty of an RHS membership all year round. Save 25% off an RHS membership today when paying by direct debit. Prices start at just £55.50. With a membership, you'll gain access to an array of special events at our gardens all year round. Be the first to know about RHS flower shows and get exclusive member-only days plus reduced-rate tickets. And you'll have the chance to enhance your gardening know-how with access to free expert garden advice, monthly editions of The Garden magazine, and so much more. Terms and conditions apply.